0: Hi, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and welcome to this episode of The Christopher Perrin Show. This is a podcast episode that's part of the truenorth.fm podcast network, and you can listen to these audios just about anywhere that podcasts are hosted, and you can also view the videos of this podcast at the Classical Academic Press YouTube channel and on truenorth.fm. In this episode, I'm, I'm continuing my exploration and discussion of the virtues. We've looked at the four cardinal virtues. These are the hinge virtues that made up the moral man or woman from the Greco, Greek, and Roman tradition. They were, of course, if you have been with me, you know these, they were prudence, justice, temperance, and courage, or fortitude. And now we're looking at faith, hope, and love, the theological virtues that in the Christian tradition complement, extend, and complete or fulfill the cardinal virtues. So we're looking today at faith or belief. And I'm not going to be saying too much that is original, <laughs> perhaps nothing original. We'll see, because I'm in debt to a lot of other writers, particularly this writer, Joseph Pieper, who wrote Faith, Open Love. And much of what I say in the in the podcast about Faith Open Love will be based on what I have enjoyed reading from Pieper and some others. I'll synthesize some other writers like Robert Wilkin. Um, His book, The Spirit of Early Christianity, and and his uh, collection of essays, Remembering the Christian Past, have been very helpful to me. So, what is this virtue, faith? Well, you know, faith or belief comes from 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul, the Apostle Paul, famously finishes that chapter on love. Sometimes it's called the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, by saying, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So we'll be looking at faith, open love. And eventually, as I go through these episodes, I'll talk about why love would be the greatest. But we're going to start with faith. So what is faith? How would you define it? Or belief? Well, these words um, have a semantic range. And so they can be used in different ways. And sometimes in competing ways, but nonetheless legitimate as, as they're used in various contexts. H.L. Uh, Mencken, the bad boy of Baltimore um, from previous generation or two, said that faith is believing in something you know couldn't possibly be true. Well, that's not what we're going to say is the case. There's, there's a, a sense in which a hard-boiled cynic might say yeah, faith is believing in something you know can't possibly be true, um, but that's not what we're going to talk about. It's been defined a faith as the conviction of the truth of a given proposition resting upon grounds insufficient to constitute positive knowledge. Okay, that's a more sophisticated way of saying the same thing Mencken said. You don't have grounds for believing this, but you just have faith that it's true. That's actually credulity. There's, a, you know, there's another word, credulity, which just means a kind of gullible willingness to believe things that you really don't have grounds to believe. That's not what the, the theological virtue of faith has been defined to be considered to be, not if you read the great writers, the great tradition on this. That's somebody on the outside skeptical and cynically criticizing the tradition. A faith can also be um, a kind of, well assumption that you you need to hold to to make sense of the world. In other words, you have to believe certain things in order to actually make sense of how humans act, believe, and conduct themselves. For example, uh, you really have to believe that there are some universal ethical wrongs and right in order to conduct yourself morally in the world. How, if if you thought that it was possible that murdering people for fun was actually a possibility for someone, because there's no right or wrong, you could imagine how ethically a confused society could become. So what we find is that there are universal beliefs about such things as wanton murder being bad. There are some universal ethics that just permeate universally hum, the human human society. So is faith a a, a leap into the dark or is it a step into the light? This is another way of getting at the confusion about the definitions of the word belief or faith. When it comes to geometry, there are axioms. There are certain propositions that you just have to believe if you're going to do geometry. You have to believe, for example, that two straight lines, they never touch. Two parallel lines, rather, never touch. Or you'll have to believe that a straight line is the shortest distance between two points. Now, you could conduct 100,000 experiments to try to prove this is true, or you could accept it as an axiom and find out that you really can't do geometry unless you accept that proposition. Or how about this, that that the whole is greater than any of its parts. Do you believe that to be the case? Well, you might say these things are kind of self-evident. Well, could you prove these things? How long would it take you to prove them? Uh, so if you study geometry, you know that there are some axioms that are seemingly self-evident, that if you don't assume them, you can't do geometry. Okay, so those would be axioms, presuppositions, assumptions that seem to be universally held. So we're already getting to to another sense of that of, of belief, and that belief is not irrational, not in the classical tradition. In fact, Aquinas says that faith always presupposes understanding, and man could not believingly assent to any proposition, he says, if he did not in some way already understand it. That doesn't mean he knows it fully, but there's some understanding of what this thing is that I'm believing, or or I'm just believing in, a, in, in some, some, some kind of a crazy gobbledygook concept that has no content in my mind whatsoever, and that's not the case when people believe. In fact, Anselm famously said that credo ut intelligam, that I believe in order that I might understand. And there's, so there's something in the classical tradition about belief actually aiding or leading to greater understanding. So it's not irrational. It's not contrary to reason. And he said that faith seeks understanding, fides quirens intellectum, Anselm from the 11th century. So whatever faith is, in the classical tradition, it has sought greater understanding and has not been considered to be in any way irrational. Anselm, by the way, is reflecting on, when he writes about this, on Isaiah 7-9, which reads this, The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And reflecting on that, he ends up speaking to faith, seeking understanding. In other words, faith has to stand. And what does it stand on? Well, it's going to stand on some reason. Reason is going to be involved. The intellect is going to be present. Okay, it might be good now to just step back for a moment and and look at some common modes of of thinking. We, We talk about Uh, knowing something, uh, but we, we have other words for describing how we think about objects in the world or concepts. We sometimes doubt. We sometimes suppose or opine, have opinions. I suppose that's possible. I suppose maybe it's because, okay, you're supposing. You're not doubting, but you're still not sure, are you? So we can doubt, we can suppose, and then we can know. Some things we, we don't have any doubts about whatsoever. We know, we, we know things. We have knowledge of things. But then there are other things that we believe. So what's the difference between doubting, supposing, knowing, and believing? Well, it's at least helpful to just pause and recognize that we have these different modes of assessing the world around us. Sometimes we doubt. Sometimes we know. Sometimes we suppose. And sometimes we believe. What's the difference? Now, those of you who are educators, It's these; these, I think, are valuable modes to just contemplate. When you're working with a student, sometimes you are sharing something with your students that is an opinion of yours. And sometimes you're sharing something that is knowledge that you have. And you can think of course, many examples, of course, from history of your own life. If you're sharing something from your own personal history, you can share that with knowledge. I climbed Mount Washington with two of my friends, and we did it on a, on a sunny day, but when we got up to the top, it was 32 degrees. It was quite cold, even though it was 75 degrees down at the bottom. You can share these things, and you're not, you're not doubting it. It's something you know from direct experience but if you're reporting something that you've heard about your grandfather you might say my grandfather once hiked mount washington in 2 hours in a pair of shorts when he was only 17 years old uh, the farther back you go the less sure you might be about it you might be sharing something that's something that's more of an opinion or something that you think might be the case you suppose might be the case but isn't direct knowledge But that knowledge could be belief if it was told to you by your grandfather and you believed your grandfather because of who your grandfather is. Note as well that of all these four modes of thought, there's only one of them that doesn't assent to something being true, and that's the doubter. The the one who was doubting doesn't actually assent to the fact that your grandfather or my grandfather hiked Mount Everest in two hours when he was 17 in just a pair of shorts. He doubts this. He does not assent. But the other three who would be supposing or knowing or believing, all three of those modes of thinking assent to the truth of the proposition that he did hike Mount Washington at age 17, In two hours, in his shorts. Those of you who are in the Christian tradition, can you think of some scripture that talks about faith and belief that might relate to these modes of thinking? How about that passage from Hebrews 12, that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see? So I did not see my grandfather hike. Uh, Mount Mount Washington, which, by the way, is in Vermont, but I believe it. I believe, it is, I believe it's a true reality, even though I have no direct knowledge of it. The Hebrew seems to be using belief in this way, and so I just want to pause here for a moment and say, yes, you can use the word believe or faith in different ways. Just have faith. We'll get there. Or, you know, uh, when someone says, isn't he going to be back at 4 o'clock? I, I believe so. Was well, that kind of belief a, a belief that it's actually going to be the case or is the case? Or I believe he went to the University of Pennsylvania. Does that mean you are convinced of the reality of it? So sometimes we use the word belief um, in ways that indicate that I'm just supposing. So the word is flexible. Or what if I were to say to you, I believe my son is a Latin teacher. Well, don't you know? And the fact is, I do know that my son is a Latin teacher. I don't have to believe it because I have direct knowledge of it. I know it. And so here we see that there's a sense in which knowledge of something is stronger than belief of something, and yet knowing that thing and believing that thing both involve an assent to the reality of that thing. So there's a principle here. And I'm gonna share four principles with you. The first is that the one believing does not have exact direct knowledge of what he believes. He assents to its truth, but he doesn't have direct knowledge. And this belief is also unrestricted, unreserved, unconditional assent. I, without qualification and reservation, believe that my grandfather did hike Mount Washington at age 17 in two hours. How can that be the case? We'll get there. Here's what uh, uh, John Henry Newman says about belief being unrestricted, unreserved, unconditional assent, even though it doesn't have direct and exact knowledge of of the object. He says this, it's part of the concept of belief itself that a man is certain of that which he believes. A person who says, I believe just at this moment, but I, cannot, I can't answer that I'll be believing tomorrow, well, that person doesn't believe. So here's the second principle. The one believing without qualification or condition, the truth of something, that's belief as well. It's not just the fact that you don't have direct knowledge. It's the fact that you believe it without qualification or reservation. Now, can you think of somebody somebody who, who doubted, uh, who, 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 who stated there must be a condition met before I will believe? And of course, what comes to my mind is, is the Apostle Thomas, who said he wasn't there to see the resurrected Christ in the Gospel of John. And so he says, unless I put my fingers in his side, I will not believe. He, he sets forth a condition. I'm not going to believe that Christ has been raised from the dead based on what you have shared with me, based on your testimony. That is not sufficient for me to believe. I must put my fingers in his hands and side. Then I will believe. And if you know the Gospel of John, you know that that does happen. And Christ says to him, here, my side, my fingers, put your, put your finger in my side and be no longer unbelieving but believing. And, of course, uh, Thomas falls to his knees and says, my Lord and my God. Okay, so we've covered two principles. One, belief is that the person believing does not have a direct and exact knowledge of that which he believes. Number two, this person believes without qualification or condition. How can that be? So note these two elements. The content of that the truth in question cannot be verified to the believer, and yet it's unreservedly accepted as true and real how is it possible for a person to have unqualified, unreserved, unconditional assent to the truth of something that he does not know by direct experience or familiarity? It's part of the question in the classical tradition about belief or faith. The answer is that the be- believing person is always believing in someone. There's a person involved. I believe my grandfather made that hike because he told me so and because he is trustworthy. Okay, then that's the fourth principle. To believe always means to believe someone and to believe something. The believer, in the strict sense of the word, accepts as a given matter, he, he accepts something as real and true on the testimony of someone else. Therefore, the reason for believing something is that one believes someone. Now, this is interesting even when you look at the Latin and the Greek, because the Latin credo often features the use of the preposition in, to believe in, credo in Christum, to believe in Christ, or credo in eum, I believe in him. And the Greek word pisteo is uh, the, the Greek equivalent to believe or to have faith in, it works the same way. You believe in a person often, that the way the verb, the, the syntax and grammar works. Belief is always addressed to a person. Now, think about a judge or a jury hearing, say, a, a case of thievery. And let's just assume that all of the witnesses that come before the jury who are who are saying they saw this and they saw that? Let's just say all of them were also criminals and weren't trustworthy witnesses. And so you get all this evidence gathered, but the, those in which you are hearing are not credible. How would you come to a decision about your verdict? Verdict means to say something that is true, veros, true, and dicto, I you know, dico, I say. So a verdict is something said that's true. Well you can see that it would be more difficult than if you had trustworthy witnesses who came before you as a jury. So you might come to a point of having assent, maybe beyond what you would call a reasonable doubt, but not trust in the persons who bore the testimony. And this makes some legal cases more difficult when the witnesses are not trustworthy. So in all belief, the decisive factor is who it is whose statement is assented to. People writes, belief itself is not purely achieved when someone accepts as truth the statement of one whom he trusts, but only when he accepts it for the simple reason that the trusted person states it. The third principle, we believe on the basis of testimony, the testimony of some person. Fourth principle, we believe it on the basis of a trusted person. Who gives us that testimony? Who is it that we're speaking of? Who is the person bringing the testimony? And Robert Wilkin, in his book, Remembering the Christian Past, he says, the first question then that a Christian intellectual should ask is not what should be believed or what should one think, but whom should one trust? Now, Just think about this for a moment in relationship to teaching. I think considering those four modes can be really helpful for any educator and student. The doubting, the supposing, the knowing, and the believing, and understanding the difference of of those modes. And knowing when you are using one mode or another, either you or your students, or both at the same time. But think now about what it means that your students are being ask to trust you, that you as a teacher come to them as somebody who has authority, whom hopefully over periods of months and even years, students have come to believe you as a truth-telling person, a trustworthy person, and then think of the responsibility that therefore comes to you as a teacher. If you were to mislead or to say something, that you don't believe is true or to to mislead them because you yourself have become in some ways deceived yourself and therefore deceiving to your students it's a heavy burden and and you know this especially if you if you've taught young children they're so willing to trust you they're willing to follow you and this is why i think it's so so dangerous if, uh, to mislead a child and why Christ talks about you know, the millstone being put on the neck around the neck of anybody who would mislead and deceive a child with a group of third graders you could stand up and say guess what students next week we're going to begin a new study of a new subject and often they will they will cheer and say that great what is it and no matter what you say they will be excited and think that you have something wonderful to offer. They're so full, these young children are, of wonder and expectation and hope and trust in you as the teacher. Wilkin goes on and he says, There's another sense of authority that the teacher has that traces its source to the actor in the word actoritas. The, our English word authority is a version of the Latin word actoritas, And it's related to actor. An actor could be a magistrate, a writer, a witness, someone who's worthy of trust, a guarantor, a warrantor, who attests to the truth of a statement, one who teaches or advises. So we have the word author. If someone was an author in the ancient world, it meant that they had authority because what they wrote was considered important enough that others would copy it by hand and give it or sell it to others. That's how you could become an authority. You could write something, but would you write something that was good enough that everyone would want to copy it by hand? So almost by definition, anything that you would hold in your hands in the ancient world had authority because it had been already kind of won a competition of importance, unlike how easy it is now to publish on the internet. He says, authority in this view has to do with trustworthiness, with the confidence a teacher earns through teaching with truthfulness, if you will. To say we need authority is much the same thing as saying we need teachers. To be a teacher means to bear responsibility and accountability. He goes on and he says this, "'Authority resides in a person who by actions "'as well as words invites trust and confidence. "'Augustine's model for authority "'is the relation of a teacher to a student, "'a master to a disciple, not a magistrate to a subject. "'The student's trust is won not simply by words, "'but also by actions, by the kind of person the teacher is, "'in short, by character.'" So when my grandfather says he hiked Mount Washington in two hours, I trust him because of his character, what I know about him, because he invites trust and confidence. The trustworthy person has become trustworthy because of the way he acts and behaves and the way he argues, the way he tries to bring things together to the student that can become known clearly as true, good, or beautiful, say. Here's how Wilkin puts it. Authority rests neither on external legitimization nor on power, but on trustworthiness, or in Augustine's word, on truth. In other words, the teacher embodies truth and brings truth uh, repeatedly in various contexts to his students, such that the students begin to trust him as a truth-bringer. Wilkin writes, its purpose Authority's purpose is to clarify and illuminate, that is to aid understanding, and its instrument is argument, not coercion. If a teacher is constantly saying, believe me, without giving reasons, the student may for a time assent, but he will not understand nor be convinced, and in time he will stop listening. As St. Aquinas wrote, if the teacher determines that the question is is by appeal to authorities. Only the student will be convinced the thing is so, but will have required no knowledge or understanding, and he will go away with an empty mind. It's not enough just to appeal to authority. This teacher has to embody truth and bring arguments, make things clear by evidence and argument and logic that something is true. He concludes, Pieper does, by saying that it seems that human beings are almost designed to want to trust a trustworthy person. We do this as children and then we do it through our life and there's a kind of delight in knowing somebody who is trustworthy, who can bring us a truth that we will accept as real and true even though we don't have direct knowledge of it ourselves. Um, There's so many things that we believe to be true that we we haven't uh, directly experienced and things uh, about which we are not familiar. Look around you at the technology. You believe that somehow there are waves that move through the sky, microwaves that enable your cell phone to work, and you probably don't have direct experience with this or haven't studied it directly, but you do believe it's happening. You believe in the radio signal and other things that are, are mysterious to you, but you believe it on the authority and testimony of others that you regard to be trustworthy. You may believe that the moon has dust on it of two or three inches, and you're quite convinced this is a reality, and you certainly haven't been to the moon. So he thinks, as it were, that this is a delight to us, and it would be unnatural not to trust and believe and trustworthy persons to understand how the cosmos works and what it's like. Our our understanding of reality and our engagement with the real would be so, so narrow if we had to have direct experience with anything before we would know it to be true. How would you live in such a world? You don't. You do believe people. But he's going further and he's saying, there's something about you and me that delights in coming to know truth this way. And so he says Something along these lines. He says, this seems to signal something about human beings. This may be a bit speculative, but it's interesting. It seems to signal that someone with a capital S exists who stands incomparably higher above the mature man and that this someone has spoken in a manner audible to man. He's speaking about God. He's speaking... He thinks that perhaps there's something about the world, he's speaking, of course, as a Christian, such that humans, designed in the image and likeness of God, created in the image and likeness of God, at some sense intuit that they are to believe in that someone. And this reminds me of what Chesterton said about his own life being something like a story. He writes, I had always felt life first is a story, and if there's a story, there's a storyteller with a capital S. Well, that'll conclude our first foray into examining belief, the virtue of belief, the theological virtue of belief. In the next episode, we'll look at the way in which our wills are so important and engaged in anything that we believe. The place of our volition or will. That'll be in the next podcast. Thank you for listening or viewing this episode of The Christopher Perrin Show. Once again, you can find these video episodes on the Classical Academic Press YouTube channel, and you can also watch some other videos that I've recorded on classicalu.com. I'd like to thank you for watching or listening to The Christopher Perrin Show, and to do that I can give you a coupon code that will give you 10% off on anything that you might care to order at classicalacademicpress.com, and the coupon code is simply CPSHOW. Thanks again for listening or watching.